And welcome to the Academy Podcast, where our mission is to improve lives through education, information, and some cool stories. My name is Dr. Mark Guadagnoli. I'm a professor of neuroscience and neurology and the Senior Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs at the Kirkcorian School of Medicine at UNLV. Today, our guest is Cam McDougall. Cam is a trauma release breathwork specialist and the founder and CEO of Embodied Elite Coaching. So you've probably heard the saying, control your breath, control your life. As you'll see in this podcast, that say, saying is even more true than you may think, because Cam will dive deep into the art and science of breathwork. And also, Cam's gonna share some riveting stories, including a story about a machete under the pillow. I hope you find this podcast as perspective expanding as I did. So Cam, I'm super excited. I'm actually not just excited that you're here. I'm excited that we've already had a few hours to talk yes. about lots and lots of different things. So uh, we're going to talk about breath work today. Uh, mm -hmm. We're going to ask you to give us all the way from the basics, and then we're going to move to your area of specialization, which is trauma release with breath work. Uh, we may talk a little bit about machetes under the pillow along the way <laughs> and, uh, and a whole right variety in. of other things along your story. But yeah. So let's, let's just start with the basics, the very most basics. Somebody doesn't know anything about breath work. They've heard the term. They want to know a little bit about it. Go. You're embarking on a wild journey. Um, the breath is, is, is a very unknown topic. For a lot of people, but okay, I'm sorry to, to interrupt. Yeah. I'll probably do this a lot. No, no, I'm hit me up. I'm ready. This. It's crazy though, right? Because it is, and yeah. yet it is. It is one of the few things that we do both automatically yeah. and consciously, yeah. depending on what we do. But we understand so little yeah. about it. Yeah, and it goes without saying, we have to have it. Mm -hmm. Right. For I sure. mean, when you look at the spectrum of how long we can live without X, yeah. breath is at the top of the <laughs> it list. It is the top of the list, yeah. And we know almost nothing about it. And, mm -hmm. you know, we've seen in, in books and a lot of stuff that's come out recently how poor we are at breathing in yes. general. And you're actually going to go to the next level and talk about not just surviving, but mm -hmm. thriving For because sure. of breath work. Definitely. So, Definitely. yeah, it's fascinating. Go, please. Yeah, Sorry. and so, so I think the, the, the first place you always start is what do you want to use it for? Right, a lot of people hear about breath work, but if you ask a yogi about breath work versus you ask a Wim Hof practitioner about breath work, it's a wide range, right? And and so I think one of the biggest challenges in breath work and and for people that are looking to get into it is is there is such a wide gap, and there's so many different applications for it. And so the the first question is, what do you want to use it for? Do you want to use it to calm your anxiety? Do you want to use it to connect deeper with your body? Do you want to use it to detoxify your body? Do you want to use it to heal trauma? Do you want to use it to release suppressed emotions? You know, there's so many different things. So whenever someone approaches me, I always ask, okay, well, what do you want to use it for? Or what are the challenges that you are facing? And then we'll see how breath work plays into the mix. It's, it's cool, right? Because it's, it's a single palette and you can paint any picture you yeah, want from it. Definitely. Right? So while we're talking about this, what do you want to use it for? If you're okay with it, because I know you know this area, let's talk a little bit about the science behind it, right? Mm -hmm. how, it how you can use one technique for the sympathetic nervous system, another mm -hmm. technique for the parasympathetic nervous system. So let's talk about what those are and how you can use it for those areas. Yeah, definitely. So as with breath work in its entirety, there's also a, a bunch of different 
options for working with the parasympathetic versus working with the sympathetic. When you're working with the parasympathetic, you are focusing on a various combination of, of holds and longer soothing breaths, right? You're, you're really looking to bring the system down. And, and to talk about the parasympathetic, it's actually a little bit easier to start with the sympathetic. And that's that if you think about when you're running or when you're doing physical activity, heart rate increases, respiratory rate increases, blood circulation increases, that's to fuel the body. That's to fuel a sympathetic expression. So if you think about it, higher rate of breathing, right? More intensity is going to stimulate the sympathetic side. And, and that's our fight or flight. Fight side. or flight mechanism. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The opposite's true for the parasympathetic. If you're going, if you're focusing on slower, softer, lighter breaths, calming exhales, things like humming, things like oming, things like toning, it's going to bring your system down into the opposite. And the, the way that I look at it is like, the volume and rate at which you breathe is your gas pedal and your ability to slow and, and, and move into another form of breath is the brake, right? Into that softer breath is the brake. So based on, on how you're breathing, it's going to dictate how it influences and affects the nervous system. It's, a, it's an interesting way to think about it. So the sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight, gas pedal. Yeah. Um, the uh, parasympathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, which is sometimes called rest and digest, yeah. right? So it's a yeah. comfort area, uh, more like the break that's yeah. slowing us down. Exactly. And it's and it's, I, I know you'll get into this, but it's it's pretty crazy to think about if we're breathing through our nose versus breathing through our na- mouth, the system automatically knows whether we should be gas or break. Yes. Which is, I mean, it's fascinating, right? It is. And yet we haven't used this remarkable tool from a from a global perspective we haven't mm-hmm. used it well at least in modern society mm-hmm. definitely definitely yeah. well we you know and, and i love that you said modern society you know a lot of a lot of breath work's getting a lot of buzz these days and people are like this new thing breath work and and these are ancient technologies you know these are technologies that have been used for thousands and thousands of years we just forgot and we we threw them out and didn't think that they were as powerful as they are and now with people like wim hof and Stanislav Grof and the, these other individuals who have really brought them back to life. It's, it's been really cool to see how we're starting to use them again. Yeah, so we were talking about this a little earlier just uh, over breakfast this morning, and, and one of the things that you brought up was that, you know, animals and nature basically know how to use certain mm-hmm. things, certain yeah. stressors to their advantage, and they have to because they're not the ones who orchestrate their environment, right? We orchestrate exactly. our environment, yeah. which is a good or a bad thing, depending totally. on how we use it. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we're probably the only species who can orchestrate our environment in a large-scale way, mm-hmm. and we're also the only species that's not very good at breath work. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. Okay, so um, so let's talk a little bit more. If, if somebody was coming in mm-hmm. for breath work, yeah. The first thing you would ask them is, what do you want to use it yeah. for, right? So c- we're going to talk a lot about the trauma release side. Yeah, so definitely. let's talk a little bit about the parasympathetic side, yeah. the break side. Yeah. Um, let's say they, they just want to learn how to relax. Yeah. What, what are the types of things you're going to talk to them about? Yeah, so I'll, I'll preface this too with, with I specialize in more of the intense stuff. The parasympathetic benefits 
come as the body's correction of a lot of those intense practices, which is something that we'll get into. A lot of times, though, if someone is is too highly activated, like if someone has too much stimulation of the nervous system, bringing them into an experience like that is gonna is just gonna fritz them. It's not not what we want to do. So in a situation like that, I would work with with a lot. I would I would push them or invite them to work with a much softer breathing pattern, something very light. And I would still take them on a similar journey, but it would be a soft journey. It wouldn't be one full of catharsis. It wouldn't be one full of intensity. That's what I generally do if I feel that person's nervous system is already too wound up. Going even deeper, you can look at things like pranayama. That's probably the best avenue for most people to get started if they want to calm themselves, right? Pranayama has so many different breathing techniques and it's, you know, there's, there's yoga philosophies based on, on all of this. And, and it is probably the most powerful tool for rest and digest for, for really coming into your body and, and grounding yourself. And, and it's used a lot in, uh, as you said, yoga practices. And so even some of the, the studios that, you know, we have, uh, around us and Canada, you're from Canada, the, a lot of those studios have uh, the the breathing tech that specific breathing technique that they just teach without even talking about it. Yeah, what it is, yeah, yeah. right? So let's talk a little bit about what the and like you said, there's a lot of different variations, yeah. but the basic idea behind it, because there are some things that are in common across those variations, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so talking about just to make sure I'm clear on your question, talking about the similarities across across pranayama, like right. across the rest right. and digest. Yeah, so really, what what I would say, and I, I always like to look at at CO two levels as being, you know, something that distinguishes the two apart. And pranayama is really going to focus on equal breathing parts in a very slow, controlled manner, right? And when you get that, the body tends to come into the, this peaceful state. And, and to be very honest, I haven't spent a lot of time studying the science of pranayama, which is something that I, that I want to do. But what I do know is that when the nervous system is, is being kind of supported by equal parts of breathing, inhale, exhale, it comes into a, a, a restful state, a calming state. Um, that is seen pretty much across all of the techniques, whether it's alternate nostril breathing, right? All, all these different things. They, there's always this, slow, this slow, calm breathing aspect. And a yogi would be able to really dive into that a lot more. It hasn't been my world, but that's what we see across the, across the spectrum. When people are in Shavasana, when people are doing various forms of yoga, there's these focus on you know, three seconds in, focus on three seconds out, really being intentional, really being calm. That kicks the system into a calming state. So let's, one of the things that you said was the carbon dioxide yeah. side of it. That's, see, this is really fascinating to me because we, generally we're led to believe that carbon dioxide is a bad thing, right? Mm-hmm. We And so we want to breathe it off. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it, and you can correct me on this, but my understanding is that you know we have uh, blood saturation levels of oxygen that are yeah. pretty much as high as they can go, yeah. as long as you're not in a disease situation. Yeah. 
It's the release of the blood into the system, or sorry, the carbon release dioxide. of the oxygen into the okay. system because yeah. of carbon dioxide. Yeah, exactly. Carbon dioxide is at a certain level. Yeah. It signals the release of exactly. The oxygen. Exactly, exactly. Right? Well, they, they both bind to hemoglobin, yeah. right? And, and ox, you know, I always use this analogy of a bus, right? Hemoglobin's like this bus driving around in, in your bloodstream, and you got a bunch of oxygen, you know, hanging on and taking a ride, but then you got, you know, a team of football players you know, that are carbon dioxide that come in and just start pushing everybody out the windows, right? And all the oxygen starts leaving. And so the more carbon dioxide you bring into the system, the more the hemoglobin secrete or releases, not secretes, releases that oxygen into the bloodstream. Yeah. So we so actually need it. And this is going to be important because the, what you, you know, the different breathing techniques yeah. are going to elicit exactly. different levels of carbon dioxide. Yes. And and again, this, you know, this is one one of the things that we're generally led to believe is a bad thing. It turns out, you know, there are very few things that happen by accident. Totally, right? carbon the dioxide. Smart. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. It's it's an incredible design, and so mm -hmm. carbon dioxide's there as a signaling mechanism, just like uh, oxygen is there, and a whole variety exactly. of other things. So, so this will probably be a theme that we talk about several mm -hmm. times because it's mm -hmm. it's really fascinating. Yeah. Um. So one of the things. Uh, that's unique to parasympathetic breathing yeah. is what you use to breathe with. Yes, sometimes. Okay. Right? So your your nose is generally used in pranayama. Well, I think always for the most part. But there is fire breathing, for instance, that's through the nose, yeah. which is, you know, pumping at the navel mm -hmm. and it's that, mm -hmm. right? And it, that will do that for a long period of time and, and you're, you're getting pretty activated. But the interesting thing about that is that it's really focused on the exhale. What comes out on the exhale? Carbon dioxide, right? As opposed to alternate nostril breathing, right? Which would be a lot more soft and smooth in its equal parts, yeah. right? And, and so it's this, this equal parts that I find very fascinating about this. Because when you get into these other avenues of breath work, you start to realize that like, you know, hyperventilation combined with holds starts to bring on these very wild states, you know, whereas in pranayama, you've got a lot more of this, this more meditative, more hypnotic form of breathing, uh, as opposed to, you know, except for fire breath, which, which definitely can activate the sympathetic nervous system. So I'm going to confess this to you here, I'm, I'm actually paying attention to my breath a little bit more yeah, than yeah. <laughs> right? because of this. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, uh, I've read, I think the book's called The Oxygen Advantage. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and the, I think they do a fantastic yeah. job of uh, explaining this, but um, I've been really paying attention to nasal breathing. Yes. Uh, as opposed to mouth breathing. And I've broke my nose a few times yeah. and, and I've always said, oh, I can't breathe through my nose because of it. And that may actually be an advantage for me to have to work harder mm -hmm. to do it. Mm -hmm. right? Okay, so we've got pranayama at, at one end of the spectrum, and we're going to go to the other side uh, in just a minute. But one of the things that I think is uh, is really fascinating is how you got into this area. So can you talk a little bit about your story and then how that led you down the path to look at breath work and specifically around trauma? Yeah, yeah. So... I was a performance athlete, I was a CrossFit athlete, I was a performance coach. Um, I was very involved in human transformation from the standpoint of, of the physical body. When 
I really embarked on my, my coaching journey to help people, I started realizing that a lot of people would do everything right, but wouldn't get the result that they wanted. But some people would, you know, do some of it right and they would get amazing results. And so I was always questioning, you know, why, why is this the case? What's going on here? What I realized is that fitness, nutrition, supplementation, you know, the, the more basic forms of health and vitality are just at the surface. If the mechanism through which we do all of those things is compromised, then you can do as many bicep curls or eat as many salads as you want. You're not going to get the results that you want. And so I, I started questioning, okay, what's, what's, what's going on here? What am I missing? And, and so I started diving into mindfulness. I started diving into Eastern practices. I started diving into meditation, Wim Hof breathing, you know, the, the little bit of pranayama, these various forms of, of more unconventional approaches to health and vitality. And as I started doing them myself, I started bringing them into my clients' lives. And as my clients started doing them, I started seeing my clients get better results. And so what I started seeing was, you know, for instance, if you've got a, an investment banker that wants to get fit, his cortisol levels are jacked and his sympathetic nervous system is, is activated all day, every day. You get him to go to the gym, what's that going to do? It's just going to stimulate the sympathetic nervous system even more. So he's not going to be able to recover. And if we don't recover, we don't benefit from our training. It's impossible. So you take an investment banker like that, regulate his nervous system, then give him fitness, you're going to actually get results. And, and I think this is one of the biggest challenges that so many people face, especially in, the, in society right now, where there's so much emphasis on work, 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 is that we don't actually know how to hit the brake. But we think, oh, I just need to drink another juice. I need to do another cleanse. I need to do another fast. I need to do another spin class. I need, and it's like, it's like everything's just firing all the time. It doesn't work, right? We were talking about seasons at breakfast, right? It's like you need winter. You need fall. You need those times to recover. So I started studying these other practices and bringing those types of things into my clients' lives. And I started seeing really, really powerful results. And it was beautiful. So I went, okay, there's something I'm missing here. I know everything about fitness. I know everything about performance that I can right now. And, and now I want to go study these other aspects of, of human performance. So I moved to Bali. And when I moved to Bali, I was like, okay, meditation, yoga, breath work, all these different things. I just started immersing myself in it. And I ended up dating a woman there who introduced me to breath work. She introduced me to trauma release breath work. And um, so her name is Victoria, and she, she was very good friends with Lucas Mack and Hella Weston, who now run Awaken Breathwork. Lucas became a good friend of mine, and he was like, hey, dude, I want to offer you a session uh, just as a, as a homie. You know, we just we meet each other. Let's, let's you know, come. I'm going to serve you the breath. You've never done it before. Check it out. And I was like, cool, let's do it. Blew my mind blew my mind and and you know my story we'll get into a bit of it I'm sure but I had a lot of trauma a lot that I didn't know of things I couldn't even remember and when I dropped into this breathwork session it was like a flip book of all of these things vision 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 I was screaming I was crying I was shaking I was spitting I felt like I was gonna throw up I was dizzy I everything every expression of humanness came through in that moment. It was one hour. 
after that, I had never felt so light. I had never felt so clear. I had never felt so connected to my purpose, to my mission. And in that session, my inner guidance was like, you need to, you need to learn this modality because of your history. You can bring people very deep and you can hold them in that. And I still get goosebumps when I, when I, when I talk about this, cause it was so visceral. It was so clear. And so that led to me, I followed them around the world, helping them. Cause I was like, I'll just help you. Like, I just want to watch. I just want to learn. They were, you know, really good at what they did. And, and so I supported them a lot, did my own trainings, read all the books and just immersed myself in it and slowly became a huge tool in my toolkit. I can, even as you're telling the story, and I know that this was years ago, I can see it in your eyes. It, it still affects you. Like it, oh, yeah. it's still the glimmer of that. Yeah. Which, I mean, it, it's, it's an amazing transformational story. Yeah. And, and, you know, now you are the alchemist, right? Mm -hmm. You are the one who's doing this for other people. Uh, we talked about this, the, the phrase, and I want you to say it, but it's the, the alchemist phrase that I had texted you mm. about yesterday. Alchemizing your pain into power. Yeah. Which exactly. is, which is amazing, both from the perspective of uh, a transformation, but also that creates a control for you. Mm -hmm. I mean, controlling, I mean, that gives you some of the control back. Yeah. Right? So whereas some people may be uh, a victim to their circumstances, that allows you to rise above the yes. victimhood. Yes. Right? Which in theory sounds amazing in practice is very hard. Yeah. Right. Being stuck in that victim mentality can be very safe for a lot of people. So it's it's a powerful aspect. And I find it's also one of the more challenging aspects for people because it puts us in the driver's seat. It's you know? the, this idea of the safety. Right. Yeah. There's safety in playing small. Mm -hmm. And and I, and I don't mean it in any derogatory way at all. Right. Mm -hmm. It's it is a survival mechanism. Totally. And, uh, and there are a lot of people, most people have some aspect of this. In fact, probably all of us have some aspect of this. And, but what you're suggesting, what you're offering is that there, there is a way to think about this beyond sort of just a survival Definitely. way, right? yeah. which I think is amazing. And speaking of survival, I am going to ask you to go back a little bit further. Yeah, yeah. And let's talk about, because, you know, you'd mentioned about a lot of trauma. Let's go back and talk about some of that from your early years, if you're okay with it, of course. because this piece where that you just described, very cool, but this is a person who is, is on at a different level of their journey, right? Mm -hmm. When you're, you're already a trainer and so forth, you had a few lives <laughs> before Definitely. that, right? On the Definitely. way up to there. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, it's always funny because it's, I never really know where to start, but you know, I, I want to preface this by by sharing that I am a huge believer in lived experience. Lived experience for me beats any book, any knowledge. Like, that, you know, my dad always had this, this saying that he told me, and he's like, knowledge is learned, wisdom is practiced. And... You know, I think to, just to, to, to say this to anybody that might be listening to this, it might be at a different spot on their journey. It's really important to know that what you're going through is going to be your superpower, you know, and, and I didn't know that at the time. I thought it was going to be my demise, you know, and I thought I was, I didn't think I was going to live past 22, you know, 
So I, I just like to preface this with that because it's, you know, it's really important that everybody knows that, especially if someone's going through tough times listening. It's like, it is your superpower. Uh, so uh, you may disagree with me about this, but I hear what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I, I would phrase it a little bit different. It can be your superpower. Very true. Right? Because if you don't... It can also be your demise. Right. Yeah. Because it depends on how you embrace it. The difference that, that, that I would say is that when you're aware of that and, and you've seen somebody else do it, you know, it's kind of the, f- the four-minute mile situation, right? Yeah. Where, you know, you, in concept, it's like, yeah, that's impossible. It's impossible. But then the moment you see the guy break the four-minute mile, you know it's possible for yourself too. So, you know, I, I know a lot of people who did meet their demise in that world. And they didn't know there was another option. You know, they thought they were broken. They thought that what they were dealing with was just the end all be all of their existence. And it was in that that led to their demise. It was in that. So I always like to preface that because it's awareness that gives us power. And if we have awareness and we have people around and we have a focal point or we have a, a framework or a method, we can do it. I heard a story, it's an interview with Eminem, Yeah, and he was talking about how he, at one point in his life, he had a really significant drug addiction. Yeah. And he would, you know, his friends, people around him would tell him, hey, you know, you need to get help, you need to get help. And he was like, I have, I don't have a problem with this, I don't have a problem. And he he discovered that he was sneaking off to do drugs, right? Mm-hmm. And, and something in his head made him realize that as as long as he was hiding it, you know, trying to hide it from himself, trying to yeah. hide it from others, the drugs owned him. Totally. And as soon as he put it out in the light, there's this great saying, yeah. you know, light is sunlight is the greatest antiseptic, right? Mm-hmm. As soon as he put it out in the light, he controlled it, or at least he was on the path to control it. Yeah. Right. So it's a, a lot of what you're saying, and I think that that that's why when you know when I hear you talk about this. And knowing the journey that we're going to talk about in just a minute that you've had, there's a point at which you shifted from not having control to having control, mm-hmm. even though things weren't in control, mm-hmm. right? And I don't, I don't know the answer to this, but the fact that people do that, right? They make the shift. Not everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, as we'll talk about, you've got a lot of people that didn't make the shift, but there are people who make it. And that's fascinating to me. What is it that allowed you to make the shift and doesn't allow this person to make the shift? Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, they didn't choose that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm saying this without casting stones, obviously. Definitely. But, you know, and so now not only have you helped yourself, but you're on a mission to help other people as well. And um, so, so let's talk about yeah, this. Yeah. Let's talk about that, um, er, those early days and yeah. how that transitioned to where you are now. Yeah, so it, it all kind of started, and we, we chatted about this this morning, it, it all kind of started in, in the educational system for me where I was always different. You know, I, I always was the loudest. I was always the, the one with the most energy. I didn't really know how to hit the off switch when I was younger. And that led me to get labeled with ADHD, you know, various behavioral disorders, having, you know, counselors, my own desk in the office, you know, just 
really being kind of tucked away from everybody because I was a distraction to the other people's learning. And so I, over the years, that just kept happening, kept happening, kept happening. And what I now know is that I, I didn't feel seen by anybody, right? I didn't feel seen by my parents, by the school, by anybody at that point when I was really young. I just felt like everyone was like, oh, my God, what do we do with this? That led me in high school to really pull away from school. And, and when you drop out of school or you skip, you know, 90% of your classes, who do you hang around? You know, other kids doing the same thing. And, yeah. and, and a lot of gangs prey on kids that do that, right? They, they have recruiters at schools. And if they see that you're leaving and, you know, smoking weed in the alley when you're supposed to be in class, they're going to, it's just a matter of time until they call you over. Right. And <clears throat> so at my my younger age in grade eight, I, I got recruited by a gang and just I was, you know, I was a little kid. Right. I, was you know, I look at I look at like 13 year olds now and I'm like, oh, my goodness, like you're a child, a child. But anyways, I got brought in and it was for really dumb stuff. Right. You know, at that age, you're you know, you're 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 driving this thing there. You're buying this thing there. You're selling this thing there. It's it's not really, you know, we're not talking organized crime. It's pretty petty stuff. But I found connection. I found people that had my back, you know. And 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 there was one moment in in that school where I got thrust into uh, a fight with somebody. And this guy was huge, like a really big dude. And uh, there was, you know, 100 people around us from the school. And, and this guy was just wailing on me, right? Just wailing on me. The whole crew ran into the the the, the fight, broke it up, and, and, you know, they beat the living shit out of this guy and his friends. But at that moment, I was like, whoa, these are my people. And now I think they orchestrated the fight because it's a technique to bring people in to make them, you know, really feel that way. But needless to say, it worked, right? And, and so I ended up going deeper and deeper with them. That led to me getting kicked out of that school. I went to another school in the down, or not downtown Eastside, pretty close, like Broadway and Maine, Tupper area. And of Vancouver. Of Vancouver. Yeah. And <clears throat> it got a lot worse there. The, the, the crime was a lot, a lot worse there, the, the gang kind of um, presence was a lot worse there. And so I was just going progressively down this path. Uh, and at the age of 14, I got in charge with armed robbery, right? So 14 years old, little kid, you know, getting handcuffed and brought away for armed robbery. After that, my parents were like, okay, we got to get you the hell out of here, which was probably a good thing in the end. But it took about a couple years to, to get me to move to Whistler. And they, they moved me up there to go be with my dad, who had moved there a couple years a couple years back. But the kind of roots had already been been anchored in. And, and I moved to Whistler, and as an entrepreneurial criminal, saw a massive opportunity. I saw lots of money. I saw partying. So, of course, naturally, we go to what we know and, and started dealing drugs up there. Did my thing for many years up there, and... Just spent most of my time in and out of juvenile detention, um, you know, doing all, all, all kinds of different 
ridiculous things in the drug world and the robbery world and, and just lived a life that was, you know, very, very wild. Um, wasn't in school anymore, dropped out in grade 10 and parents didn't know where I was. I didn't really know where I was. And, and, you know, this whole thing culminated in, in me having, you know, two apartments in the downtown East side of Vancouver and, you know, guns in the closet and, you know, machetes under the pillow and, and all kinds of ridiculousness, wildness and, and, and pain and challenge and addiction and fear, um, trying to make it, you know, to be, to be the, you know, the next big thing in, in the drug scene in Vancouver. And you're in your teens still at this point. Oh yeah. Yeah. I was, so, so my mom kicked me out when I was about 16 and, uh, they, in an attempt to kind of keep me together, my parents had like got me a little apartment for myself because the cops kept coming to the house, you know, cars with loud subs were always coming to the house. It was an environment that my mom just couldn't, couldn't handle. And she had just had a new baby. Um, and so they were like, we're going to put you in this apartment. Sure enough, I used that apartment for really bad things and lasted about two and a half months before I was brought off to jail again for about four months at that time. And so, you know, yeah, they, 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 they did what they could, but you know, I was out at the age of 16. And after that, it led to you know, pretty much being on my own until about 21, 22 when I had that moment. Can you talk a little bit about the moment? Yeah, of course. Um, another, another goosebump moment. So we were, we were living in the downtown east side. We had two apartments. Um, you know, we were doing all kinds of stuff. You know, name it. We were a part of it. And I had a favorite little Vietnamese restaurant that I used to go to. It's called Pho Triple Eight. And, uh, I went there, got my lunch. I remember I had a chicken banh mi sandwich and I had a strawberry condensed milkshake. And I was walking back to my house, which was about four blocks away. And I crossed Nanaimo and then I crossed Hastings. And then there was another street right after Hastings with a stop sign. And the moment I got to that street, I still don't know. <laughs> I still don't know what, what happened, but it was like a lightning bolt hit me in the head. Like something just came into my forehead, boom. Dropped my sandwich, dropped my shake. Everything was on the ground. And I stood there for I don't know how long, but I came to and I heard, you know, a bunch of cars honking at me. And, and the thing was, you know, I'm in the heroin capital of, you know, I think it's one of the most condensed heroin capitals in all of North America, East Hastings. Um, and so it's pretty normal to see people just like staring at the sky in the middle of the street right so it wasn't it wasn't that weird for people but i came to and all these cars are honking their horns and i see my sandwich i'm like oh my god okay so i i scuttle across the street still feeling really weird i, I you know i didn't i didn't know what to think of it <clears throat> but all i knew in that moment was it just said get out it's all that's the only message i got was get out get out get out and it's really weird to think about this, but I literally walked from that intersection into the house. I gave the car keys. I gave my money. I gave my clothes. I gave everything that I had to my associate at the time. And then I was like, I'm out. Filled up a little garbage bag, like straight up out of a movie, right? Filled up my you know little garbage bag with some of my essentials. <clears throat> Got on a bus went to my mom's house and I was like, I want to turn my life around. 
And then uh, not too long after, the house got kicked in by SWAT. And, you know, one individual that's, that was involved is still gone. It's, you know, still, still very much tied up in that. So it was a pretty, pretty wild, wild moment. And you, you um, yeah, you know, we've talked about this a few times, and I still just have this vision of that situation. You know, uh, a young, very young man um, in the middle of the street with not knowing what happened, and you chose to take that to get out, like yeah. the message gave you, right? We, we're, we're all given messages, but yeah. we don't necessarily listen to them, right? That's a pretty powerful one. This, it took my body over. Yeah. It was like, I, that's why it's such a, you know, people ask me, you know, about the spiritual world, and, you know, I wasn't spiritual. I didn't meditate. I wasn't sitting with ayahuasca. I wasn't, you know, on a psilocybin journey wasn't doing breath work, you know, something spoke to me that day that, that, you know, I call it the spiritual bitch slap. (laughs) (laughs) That was just like, you got to change. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and I didn't listen, you know, I listened at that point, but I, I replicated the same thing in the finance world. You know, I, I turned my life around, but, you know, ended up becoming just a, a money dealer instead of a drug dealer and, and pretty much repeated the same thing in a legitimate, societally accepted way um, until I really, really had a, had a moment of transformation. But it, it, was, it, it was my segue. Yeah. But that moment of transformation that you had from the, from the money world, yeah. so to speak, <clears throat> that was really, that wasn't the, this, you know, lightning from... No. That was something where you were now listening to the whispers, yeah, right? Exactly. You didn't need it to be yeah. a yeah. megaphone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, I think it's one of the great things in life if we get ourselves to the point where we can listen to the whispers. Yeah. Right? But you have to be quiet, mm-hmm. and you have to be still to be able to do that. So You got to silence the mind, that's for sure, as much as you can. You got to, yeah, you got to create space to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, so this, now, you know, putting these pieces together, this is why the idea of being able to heal trauma through any means, but in, in this case, breath work became so powerful to you yeah. because you had the trauma. I mean, yeah. again, we all do, yeah. um, but it's different for different people, and, and you made that choice. So now let's talk about the, the trauma release side of mm-hmm. the breath work, and now we're over largely into the, the sympathetic side of the yeah. nervous system, right? Yeah. We can get into some, some cool conversations around the neural mechanisms as well, but but let's hear about trauma. What what happens? What should people expect? What do you do? Um, I think you've done a beautiful job of explaining this to me. I'd like love for you to explain it again. Yeah, definitely. So the the the, the best place to start is always like what what is trauma, right? And and <clears throat> you know a, a lot of people get caught up in in traumatic events, right? You hear people talk, oh, I I experienced a traumatic event. And a lot of us think it's the event. But trauma is an unexpressed, energetic force trapped in the body that didn't get an opportunity to complete, right? So, for instance, we'll talk about animals. It's a lot easier to, to go from the animal to the human. 
but gazelles at a watering hole, drinking water, hanging out. Lion comes out, chases the gazelle. That gazelle is going to perk up. Sympathetic nervous system is activated. No hesitation. Boom. It's either going to flight, right? It's going to flee, or flee, fight, or freeze, right? It's going to choose one of those three things, but it's going to be instantaneous. And what's going to happen is in that instantaneous moment, it's going to either get a chance to complete its cycle or it's going to die, right? There's no in-between. Humans, we have the neocortex, right? We have the thinking mind. We also have societal pressures. We also have ideas of what's right. We have ideas of what's wrong. And we also can get paralysis by analysis, right? And paralysis by analysis, in my opinion, is the root of all trauma. Because the if, if we're not careful and we don't let our instincts dictate what we need to do, we're going to analyze what the best thing to do is and we're probably going to get trapped. And when we get trapped and we go numb, that's when trauma occurs. And to, to extend this a little bit, that gazelle, when it's, if it escapes, yeah. is going to just stand there and shake for and a little discharge, bit. discharge, exactly. Right? And discharge yeah. that energy. Yeah, exactly. But have you ever heard of a book uh, by Robert Sapolsky, Robert Sapolsky called Why Zebras Don't Have Ulcers? Yeah. It's a great, it's a great book. Great book. Right? I've read it. Yeah. yeah. And and he talks about this from yeah. a little bit different level, but yeah. it's essentially the same thing. I yeah. mean, our our fight or flight mechanism was designed exactly for that. And in the few, a few seconds, you know, that we were either yeah. uh, safe or eaten or yeah. being eaten, that's what it was intended for. And yet, exactly. on a day to day basis, we because of this neocortex, right? Yeah. Because of this big brain that we have it continues to ruminate on exactly. these stressors that we yeah. have. And so we've got an a ancient, ancient system yeah. in a modern society mm-hmm. that just, you know, most of the time screws us up. Yeah, right? and, and that's what causes re-traumatization, right? That's what creates the trauma cycle is we, you know, basically, you know, for instance, you see it in sexual trauma a lot where, you know, a, a person is sexually assaulted. They go, they go numb, right, naturally. And then they get stuck in rage, right? And they get stuck in rage, rage numb, rage numb, rage numb, and that becomes their life, right? That becomes the the state of their nervous system, mm-hmm. and it's because we think about the past event, and we think about what could have been different. That 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 gazelle isn't going. Is that lion coming back? Like it's not doing that. That gazelle is just like lion, boom, shake water, you yeah. know, and it just lives by that instinctual way of being. Whereas we'd be like, I'm not going to that water hole again. But, you know, it's, it, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we generalize yeah. our environment of trauma. Uh, you know, where were we? What was the sky like? There's a great mm-hmm. book called Mind Wide Open. Yeah. Uh, and in the opening of the book, the author, who uh, Stephen Johnson, I believe, mm-hmm. does a phenomenal job talking about, he's walking through New York City where he lived, and it was an absolutely perfect day. Mm-hmm. Sky was blue, which is fairly rare. Um, perfect temperature. Everything was beautiful. He looks through these buildings where he lived, and he sees the World Trade Center, and then he sees an airplane hit it. Mm-hmm. And for years, if the sky was ever blue, he would have this yeah. doom yeah. feeling, yeah. right? Because we generalize those uh, unsafe environments, yeah. everything around it, all the context around it, yeah. 
because that's safe yeah. from a, a, a survival, survival mechanism, right? And yeah. and that's our primary reason for human nature. I mean, that's yeah. when the system was developed for survival, totally, right? But we're not in that world anymore. No. no. And, and but if we don't have something that can, uh, I don't want to say work around because I think it's it's bigger than that. We don't have something that can help us move past that. Mm-hmm. We're going to be stuck yeah. in that trauma. Yeah. And and to be super clear here, and I know this is true for both of us, we're not casting stones for people who are in stuck in trauma. I mean, that's a survival mechanism that mm-hmm. was their best way of dealing with it at the time. Mm-hmm. Some one of the things that Definitely. you're offering is a different way to deal with it. Right? Yeah. Well, it's a it's a powerful force, and 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 I think that. You know, it, it it provides all organisms with this 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 superpower, right? Like when a ball is flying at you, and you can just you know grab it out of the air before you even think about it. Like that's that's fascinating that the brain has the ability to have that that peripheral right. evaluation of what's taking place. Like it, it's really really cool. You know what what the the problem that we have now, and you just alluded to it, is is we we've got this clash of like humanness and animalness, right? Or or modern human and mm-hmm. and, and and ancient animal, and you know, for instance, we think shaking's weird. We think crying is wrong. We think screaming means something's bad. We think that you know sexual expression needs to be tucked away in a bedroom. Like all of these very primal animalistic parts of us are now deemed as almost taboo which makes matters even worse because how does how does trauma move through expression right and we're completely suppressed as a species now so we've got this this animalistic you know ancient technology inside of us and we've got this modern society that's almost like putting a box over it and that box is just pressures building and building and building and building, and humans don't have an opportunity to express, so we implode. Well, it's interesting because as I'm listening to you, I, I agree with you almost always, but it's mo- uh, Western or modern humans, right? Yes. So if we look at people who are still tribal by their yeah. nature, yeah. they're going to behave very differently Definitely. in these kinds of situations. It's, yeah. it's to your point earlier, right? They, they're more in touch with what yeah. happens naturally Mm-hmm. than the repression that is society, the Puritan mm-hmm. society that most of us live in. Yeah. Right. And, and that's a that's a great segue into this because, you know, like we said before, these breathing techniques are ancient technologies. And and you know, the the way that I that I see breath work now is it gives people an opportunity to express whatever they need to express, however they need to express it in whatever way. And we never have that. Nope. In mo- we don't. In modern society. We don't. And we need it yeah. for our health, for our vitality, for our being. So, you know, if we were to kind of segue into how trauma release works is, you know, trauma release breath work. You know, I, I was trained by a man named Gitan Tonkov. He, he created a biodynamic trauma release systems breath work. And then I was also trained by the Awaken crew and have, have done a lot of research myself. And and, and the type of breath work that I now provide is, is kind of a culmination of, of everything I've learned, but still falls under the category of trauma release. It is an experience designed to activate your primal side, your lizard brain, 
bypass your cognitive brain and allow for the body to express what the body needs to express, which comes from a sympathetic nervous system activation. When you create an environment, the right set, the right setting for people to do that, you get transformation in an instant that would never happen otherwise. You know, the amount of people that I've served at our events that come up after and they say this four-hour workshop was more productive than 25 years of therapy tells you something, right? It tells us that, like, we're still living out of the mind so much in, in talk. We need to talk about what happened. Let's talk about what happened. Your soma, your body, is such an intelligent vessel, you know, there's, there's neurological plexes in the gut. There's neurological plexes in the heart. There, there's, there's, there's this communication network through the whole thing. But we stay stuck in this, in, in, in the thinking mind. But the moment that we bypass the thinking mind and let the body come to play how the body needs to play, you just move energy that's stuck that's creating disease. And it can be instantaneous. And that's, where, that's what, what fascinates me about my experience because Lucas showed me that in an instant. All of those moments where I wanted to scream or I wanted to run or I wanted to do all those things, I just didn't get an opportunity to do that because I had to look hard, right? And a lot of people from, you know, who are involved in that kind of stuff get it. You got to have an image. But you're scared. I don't care what anybody says. You're scared. And you mostly just cover that up with aggression. Mm-hmm. Right. But you're scared. You don't get a chance to run. You don't get a chance to cry. You don't get a chance to go, oh, my God, I almost just died. You swallow it. You know, and, and so for Lucas to be able to show me that it was just this this immediate experience of how much stuff I had stored up in my body. It's, you know, one of the things that, that jumps out at me as you're saying this is, you know, so we're kind of dividing the brain into two parts, right? The, the neocortex, prefrontal cortex, that sort of the newer area of the brain, yeah. and then uh, the reptilian brain or primal brain that you're talking about. Yeah. You know, a lot of the memory centers and emotional centers are there. Yeah. And we're taught, so to get back to school, uh, we're taught to really focus on the, uh, the neocortex, right? Yeah. The things that are coming, and we're rewarded for that too. Yeah. And we're, to a large extent, punished for the primal aspect yeah. of it. And it's not to bastardize either one of them. They're both important. Yeah. But we need a balance, just for like sure. we do in most things, yeah. right? And I think it's really interesting that a lot of what you're, what you're doing is giving some, some say-so to the primal area of the brain mm-hmm. to help to start create that balance. Because I've never heard you say, don't think about things, right? No. Don't use... No, the, it's a powerful right, tool. Right. Powerful tool. And, and it's, but so is the, the primal area. You know, mm-hmm. it's interesting. There's been some situations where somebody um, has had some type of a brain injury, right? Yeah. Phineas Gage is one of the really famous ones who had a uh, the, the equivalent of a frontal lobotomy. He had a yep. spike go through his brain. Yeah. Another one who had uh, the the amygdala, which is largely responsible for emotional yep. uh, m- memory waiting, uh, was deteriorated by a, a virus, right? Yep. These people couldn't function mm-hmm. because they didn't have part of their brain, yep. the other part of their brain, mm-hmm. right? And so it speaks to how very important the interaction mm-hmm. is, and yet 
in society, we're really taught to not have the interaction. Definitely. You know, we're really taught to be on the on the uh, neocortex side of things. Definitely. So I think it's cool that you're able to tap into something that's ancient mm-hmm. to to help people heal. Yeah. Right? And and again, you know, this is we've said this, but I think it's worth saying again. People are doing the best they can. For sure. Right. And and when they have some behavior that um, results from trauma, it, it's a it's a behavior that is in their survival. Yeah. But if they had the tools to be able to rise above that, then they've got a better chance to have a much richer life. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Well, it's, it's like in uh, Peter Levine's book, Waking the Tiger, he talks about a lot of a lot of women who had actually murdered their assailants from from um, sexual assaults and how they got deemed to be premeditated. But really, a lot of them were just expressing their fight response in a delayed manner after their freeze or after their their freeze wore off. And so that to me is just such an intense kind of description of what you're saying in the sense of, you know, your trauma makes you do wild things, wild, wild, wild things, or it makes you feel, you know, wild things. And it's really important for people to understand that it is a manifestation of that survival mechanism. But it's also important to understand that in the right container where you like where you can get the opportunity to express that anger. Mm-hmm that you have for that person, it can leave so quickly. Right. Because that energy just, boom, it just goes, right? It just leaves the system, you know? And sometimes it takes multiple sessions and things like that. But the, the initial response is, is, is fascinating. The, the fact that there is a solution, there are multiple solutions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's empowering yeah. for people. So, you know, one of the things, so if we look at, uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, people who work in, a, in what I'll call a traditional uh, mental health field. Yeah. Um, one of the things that they talk about is that they a lot of times have sort of a residual from taking on and listening to the, the issues that people have, right? Oh. But you're physically engaged mm-hmm. with people. So I've got to imagine that it, it is, it's really difficult for you because you're taking on some of the the trauma that people have through that practice. Mm. So first of all, is that true? And then secondly, what do you do about it? So the the most important thing I tell anybody that wants to get into this work is, you know, I, I, I first ask them what their practices are like and what, you know, what routines and rituals they have around just that. Because as a facilitator, you're only as clean of a vessel as you are, right? And if you if you're not able to stay clear, stay composed, and keep, for lack of a better term, your shit out of it, you're gonna get in trouble. And not only are you gonna feel like crap yourself, but you're putting other people at risk because you're not gonna be able to be there fully for them, you know. And one of the one of the topics that came up at one of my trainings was the topic of sexuality because in breathwork, a lot of times you can have men and women come to climax, right? And, and as a facilitator, for you to hold that, you got to have your shit together, right? Because hold you're, space. Yeah, hold yeah. space for that without 
getting sexually turned on or aroused or anything. You got to just be that pillar for them. So I like using sexuality as an example because most people can relate to it. You have to get to a place where you have your sexuality in check in a place where you, you have a healthy, you know, relationship with yourself from a sexual perspective. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to hold somebody in that. Same goes for anger. Same goes for sadness. Same goes for trauma. Same goes for frustration. Same goes for numbness, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, it's, it's interesting as you say it because basically if any of those things, if you don't have those in check, that's going to manifest for you totally. as the person who's exactly. leading the session. Yeah, yeah. And, and so the person would then trigger me, which would then compromise my ability to be present with them, which would ultimately potentially re-traumatize them in that experience. So the first thing I always tell people is like, you got you to gotta clean your vessel and you got to maintain your vessel. So my, my practices are ridiculous. Like if, if, if someone were to follow me with a camera and watch what I do, they'd be like, this guy's insane. Right. Because based on society, it would look like a lot of times I'm, I'm crazy, like rage rituals, for instance. Rage rituals are a very, very powerful tool that most humans need. But to express that and to be seen in that expression, people would be like, this person is having a psychotic break. But I, I always go to Osho. Like Osho is one of my favorite teachers. And, and he 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 developed this this form of meditation called dynamic meditation because he went the world's way too busy to take people and plop them on a pillow to meditate. They're just, they're way too distracted. So he was like, we have to create these states through movement, sound, expression to get people into that meditative state. And so a lot of his meditations are around laughing, crying. You know, he's got, he's got one that's, you just completely lose yourself for 15 minutes. like there's no limitations, do it in a field because you're going to break stuff in your house kind of energy. But that is the type of expression, especially once the system gets so wound up that we need, right? And so as a practitioner, it's really important that I practice what I preach in that sense and really let myself clear out my emotional body to create the capacity to hold people. You know, I'm thinking about when you're saying that, I know there's a you at one point had talked about eating grass and, <laughs> and, yeah, in like, one of the ceremonies. Yeah. And, and the, one of the things that's really interesting to me is you that gives you a, a perspective that's very, very different, right? Mm -hmm. when, you can, when you can do these things, you can express yourself in a way, yeah. all of a sudden your perspective of what is and isn't an issue totally. changes pretty dramatically. Very much you know? so. It's There's a... This is actually a, kind of a horrible example, but there's an old phrase about eat the frog in the morning. Yeah. You know, the idea of do something that's really hard in the morning yeah. and the rest of the day feels easy. Yeah. It's, it's that kind of a thing, right? Exactly. Where, you're, where you're opening up perspective mm -hmm. to things. And so somebody cuts you off in traffic and you're like, you don't even notice that somebody yeah. cut you off in traffic, right? Yeah. You've eaten the frog, so to speak. Totally, totally. So, but I, I do think, I think your point's exactly right and magnified, right? If you're going to be a physical trainer, you can't be unfit yourself in in your life. And mm -hmm. I'm talking about both mental and physical yeah. life and be able to, to preach at your highest level. For sure. If you're going to be a teacher of something, you can't be... I've, I've found when I teach, 
it's I, I feel so hypocritical if I'm talking to people about good habits and mm-hmm. I don't have good habits, right? right? And so as a practitioner at the level that you are working, you have to have, you know, just remarkable practices Mm -hmm. to clean the vessel, as you said, or it's, it's, it's going to be obvious, right? Definitely. That you don't. Definitely. What else do you do? Hmm. I have my support, right? I think that's one of the most important things is that I'm supported by both people I pay and people I don't pay. You know, I think that's something that um, we either get stuck on one of those. Either we get really used to paying a therapist and we don't confide in in our people or we just confide in our people because we don't want to pay a therapist. But I think they're both equally valuable is is paying a therapist or a coach or, you know, someone that can hold you in your emotions to really have some someone as a sounding board and then also to have community around you that understands it, that can hold you. Um, you know, one of the more challenging aspects I think of being human right now is that so many people are disconnected from their emotions that they don't actually know, you know, how to hold someone that's in sadness, you know, and, and, and so their, their response is to like push it away or suppress it. Right. It's like, it's like the, the parent with the kid who's having a fit and it's like, Oh, just take the iPad or whatever. It's like, they can't, they can't just, just be with that. They don't know how to just be like, okay, you're having a fit. That's fine. You know, there's energy moving. So I think as, as humans, it's really important that we, we surround ourselves with people that are putting in at least some intentionality into, you know, understanding human emotion, you know, and, and these people are hard to come by. You know, I only have probably, you know, five or six friends like this that I really know can hold me, right? But it's really important to have those people. So I confide in others. Um, I confide in therapists. And, and the other thing that I do is, is I, I just, I, I always try to be the student. I always try to keep learning. I try to lean into, you know, what I don't know, what I don't understand. And, and that really has, has led to a much more uh, wide, wide scope of understanding of what could take place. And I think in your, you know, for you that it's even more than, uh, just leaning into it, like you, you embrace not knowing things. Yeah, for sure. Right? And it's it's really exciting to you to have the opportunity to yeah. learn. I I happen yeah. to agree with you about that. I mean, I think it's it's a super cool opportunity. Oh, how cool is this? I don't I don't know the answer. Yeah. Right. But I I also and I don't want to be negative about this, but I also think that that's something that goes against society. Right. Mm. I mean, we're t- we're taught in school if you don't know the answer, totally, you know, that's bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but sometimes, and, and maybe on a test it is, right? Yeah. <laughs> but sometimes not knowing the answer, what a cool opportunity totally. that is. Totally, totally. So uh, if you could just walk through, you know, uh, we're going to have a breathwork session. Here's what's going to happen uh, as far as the walking into the breathworking session and, you know, the kinds of things that you would talk to somebody about in that. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, yeah, there's, there's a framework that I follow for sure. And it's pretty, it's pretty standard across most, most practitioners in this field, but the key is, is first understanding the person's mindset. So where they're at, what's taking place. Right. So I always start with sitting down, talking. Sometimes we have a tea, something like that, just to kind of understand what's going on. That's if it's a one-on-one situation, one-on-one and events are, they they follow a similar flow. So I'll I'll just kind of, I'll keep it more more generalized. 
we start by talking. We start by connecting, understanding where the mindset is. From there, we will generally move into some form of body scan meditations. And, and these are really important because what I look for in, in my clients and, and for people that are about to breathe is, is their, their connection to felt senses, right? Their connection to the textures of things. Because in breath work, it's the felt sense that causes the emotional expression, right? You feel that thing, so you express that thing. So it's really important to, to guide them through, you know, where do they feel tension? Where do they feel pain? What do those pains or tensions actually feel like from a texture perspective? So are they rough? Are they stringy? Is it sharp? You know, is it dull? Is it radiating? You know, really getting clear on, on the felt senses. Then we'll do another one that's, that's checking in on the openness. Where are you feeling open, warm, expansive, fuzzy? You know, the, the, these other areas that are, that are on the, you know, the duality of, of the first. In that, we, we find a resource for them. So generally, that place that feels the warmest, feels the softest, feels the, the smoothest is a, is a place that they can return to during their session at any time, right? It's important that they have a felt sense of comfort in their body that they can return to if the, the more challenging felt senses become too much. So we always get them into the felt sense. We get them into that resourcing state. From there, we move into you know, a, a, a basically a, a whole movement protocol to get them even more into the felt senses, um, you know, and, and, and really getting them clear on not caring what they look like, you know, not, not, not thinking about, you know, they're not dancing at the club to, to find a, to find someone to take home. You know, they're not, they're not trying to impress anybody. They're not, you know, they're, they're not at ballet. They're not doing the waltz. This is, this is like, just be, just, just move in ways that you haven't moved in a long time. And so we'll mix that sometimes between, you know, some like chaotic breathing, ex, you know, experiences, movement experiences, combinations of toning, screaming, primal screaming, all different kinds of things to really get them out of their head and into their body. And with groups of people, this is really fun because you get a whole room of people that are just in full expression, you know, in full expression. And then from there, we lie down and uh, we start to breathe. We breathe for about an hour. During that breathing experience, uh, a lot of different things can come up. You know, I've obviously explained that from the beginning of all the, all the various things that can arise in a breathing journey. Um, they breathe, we perform body work, energy work, you know, various forms of myofascial release, whatever we're intuitively called to. And I'm saying we, just cause normally we're working with a couple other people, whatever we're intuitively called to. And then, uh, after that, there's a, there's a period of integration, bringing everybody back, lots of soft touch, lots of, you know, there's a lot of hands on work because with the nervous system, you know, it, it depends on the person. Right. And you definitely, you know, we, we take a poll in the room of like who's okay with touch, who doesn't want any touch. Then we have like a way of tracking that. But for people that want it, it's a very powerful piece to soothe the nervous system. Right. It's, it's that, that, it's kind of that squeeze, you know, that Temple Grand, you know, research that was done on, on autistic children and on, on livestock. It's that, that arms, those, that squeeze, it really supports the nervous system in, in calming down. And so there's a lot of touch, there's a lot of connection depending on the person. 
And then from there, we come back and we talk and we discuss and we share about what was experienced and then provide them with integration tools and, and various things that can come up and ways to structure their future weeks because sometimes things can keep bubbling to the surface. It's the integration piece, I think, is with a lot of different uh, therapy, types of therapy, types of activity is underrated, right? I mean, yeah. It's huge and it can, yeah. it can continue for a long, long time. Yes. Sometimes out of the, sometimes so long that it's, it's out of the control of the practitioner, you know, yeah. you definitely have times where you're like, you kind of got to, that's why a lot of times if people are dealing with deep rooted trauma, I like to make sure that they have a therapist mm -hmm. or that they have somebody that they can work with that understands at least at a basic level, somatic release. Um, very important. So, you know, one of the things that I, I think is really fascinating and I, and, you know, I know that the, there's they're starting research into the mechanisms that yep. underlie a lot of the breath work as you're talking about it. You know, some of those in general terms is essentially taking the prefrontal cortex offline, so yep. to speak, so that you can move more into the primal areas. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of the research now in psychedelics, psilocybin and so forth, look at taking, you know, perhaps a default mode network, yep. sort of the... The, our normal way of thinking about the world, mm -hmm. taking that offline so that it can get rewired. You know, those those traumas that we had at one point that now are are dictating a lot of our thoughts. Yeah. Um, that that we don't have to be uh, subservient to those. Yeah. Right. That we can rewire those with totally. our modern view. So, if if you would talk a little bit about that, and I and I know you're a a uh, you really enjoy the conversations around DMT as mm -hmm. well and some mm -hmm. of the recent work that's coming out there. So you talk about those areas. Yeah, please. definitely, definitely. So, you know, one of the one of the cool things about breathwork that, you know, I experienced in my first session was a very psychedelic experience. It was a very, you know, I, I'd equate it to ayahuasca, equate it to psilocybin, anything along those lines. And, and, and it was very out of body, very real, very fascinating. You know, it, was, it, 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 it blew my mind, actually, with how, how potent it was. And, and to be clear, this is all endogenous, right? This yeah, is all not, endogenous. There was yeah. no medicine whatsoever. Yeah. It, was, right. it was all the way, uh, the, the way that... that um, I was breathing and, and, and so there was this, there was this thing that it was like, you know, the, the, the word inspire come, you know, bring spirit into the body, right? Bring it into the body. So there was this, this force, it just felt like this force kind of comes in similar to if you drink a cup of ayahuasca, similar to if you take psilocybin, you feel this, this spirit, this entity, whatever that is, enter your body and, and really start to, to work with you. And you know, we'll, we'll preface this with all of this stuff is still very unknown and, and unstudied, but one of, the, one of the most fascinating people to look at in, in this sense is Wim Hof because he, he has done so much for the world of breathwork, but he's also done a lot of, of, of research on it, and he's also really, you know, done a lot of studies, and he's kind of leading the way in, in that, that side of things. And, and so what I've become really fascinated with is is this concept of endogenous production of DMT in the body. And there's a lot of different theories around it. But one thing that, that I keep coming back to is, is, is CO2 again. And when you look at 
you know, Wim Hof, they, they did a study on, on Wim Hof's uh, participants and, and measured their, their CO2 levels and, and really started taking a look at what was happening in the system when, uh, when they were breathing versus when they were holding. And what they found was that, you know, that when respiratory alkalosis started, right, when, when, when they, am I saying that right, alkalosis? I always get that word wrong. Started when, basically when the pH of the blood goes up, due to a decrease in carbon dioxide, there were these various um, kind of DMT-dependent um, uh, components that were found in the blood that were present, particularly um, IAMNT. And I can't even begin to pronounce the, the real word of this thing. Mm -hmm. It's like on a page, it's like this long. But what's fascinating about it is that it is responsible for the conversion of tryptamine into DMT. Mm -hmm. There was a study in, I think, the 2013 Library of Public Science that studied rats, and they studied that rats with reduced lung capacity also had reductions in IMNT. So what we're starting to see is that when the lungs are performing in a healthy way and we're really changing the expression of carbon dioxide in the body and ultimately the pH of the blood, there's all of these, these really cool factors that are connected to DMT production coming to light. And another really interesting kind of segue from that is you start looking at REM sleep and you start looking at what happens to the body when, when we're in REM, respiratory rate increases, right? Melatonin increases. Melatonin is also a component of DMT, mm -hmm. right? So, or I think is DMT, yeah, yeah DMT yeah. is a component of melatonin, right? right. It's melatonin, tryptamine, mm -hmm. oops, tryptamine, then DMT, yeah. right? So you're, you're really starting to see all these patterns across the board of how breath is really playing mm -hmm. into the potentiality. I say potentiality because it's very hard to study DMT levels in the blood or in cerebral spinal fluid because of the invasiveness of it. But you're seeing a lot of similarities coming across. And, and based on my you know, experience with clients outside of the scientific research and these hypotheses is that these people are having DMT experiences. You know, they, they, it's, it's, it's undeniable. Right. And in, in a sense of, you know, sitting in ayahuasca ceremonies versus sitting in breathwork ceremonies, it's, it's the same thing taking place. So that's become something that's really, really powerful. And what I find with psychedelics is psychedelics give you a doorway to relive and experience something that helps you express what wasn't expressed. You know, that's how psychedelics help a lot of people. They they help a lot of, you know, people that are going to die from cancer come to terms with their death because a lot of times they die with those big doses. So they're actually able to express what they wanted to express to find peace. And so that you're, we're starting to see these, this cross pollination all across the board of how breath works connected to this, how it's still, you know, how all these psychedelics are connected to this and how DMT seems to be that common doorway or that common gateway. Well, you know, d so DMT, the God drug, yeah. right. Um, there's a, book, uh, The Miracle Molecule, yeah. that talks about this as well, um, associated with the pineal gland. So, yeah. and, and importantly, it's endogenous, yes. right? I mean, you can have, you know, 
sources from outside, but it's endogenous, which means that, and not just in humans, right, in other creatures as well. And so it means that there is some, you know, things don't happen by accident, mm -hmm. right? Some reason for it to be there. And I think it's interesting to be able to tie a string between all of these different modalities, mm -hmm. if you will, mm -hmm. that seem to be related to DMT, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so let me just kind of step back in a bigger picture of sure. all of this. Your North Star, yeah, right? You've had your journey, you have your practice, you had, you know, you've had multiple lives all <laughs> rolled into, you know, uh, a few decades now. What is your North Star? Like, what is the thing that you see that you're, that you're going towards? That's a great question. My North Star every day is to wake up and show people what they're actually capable of. You know, I, I think that if I look back on, on all of my evolutions or all of these lives that we spoke about, I had to die every time, you know, I, from, from, from the life of crime, I had to walk out and go wash dishes for 16 months as a grade 10 high school dropout. You know, I, I had to swallow massive bites of humble pie to do that. You know, I had to then go into the world of finance, build a massive life that I thought was extremely successful, make a ton of money beyond the trajectory to being, you know, a, a millionaire by early thirties to dissolving that whole world to restart because I realized it wasn't serving me. You know, I had to go and, and, and do that ride I was talking to you about with, with that client. I had to do all of these things and each of those things took a massive death. But on the other side of that death, there's, there's, there's limitless potential. You're given a, a, a blank canvas on, how, on, on what to do with your life. And so it's my mission to invite people into that because let's be honest, most of us just bullshit through life. We think we've got it figured out in some capacity and we just sit there and we're like, yeah, I'm good. Mm -hmm. You know, the amount of times I'm like, how are you? I'm good. It's like you're alive and you have the capability to do whatever the hell it is you want and you have the power to do whatever the hell it is you want. It's going to take some challenges. It's going to take some pain. It's probably going to take some eustress like we talked about earlier. But if you use that, there are no limits to how juicy your life can get. And so it's my mission to every day to continuously do that for myself and then to invite other people into that however I can. Okay, so uh, I think that's beautiful, by the way. I want to I extend that and ask you moments of joy mm -hmm. in your life. What are a few moments of joy in your life that come to you right now? <laughs> Honestly... That's a hard question because there's so many. Like, I won't lie, and that, that sounds ridiculous, but, you know, the moment that I, that, I, that I came into alignment with what I was supposed to do, like, my life is a playground. It really, truly is. And now it's, I, you know, so, so there's so many moments of just 
you know, complete joy and bliss. But I would say that, you know, there's levels to each of them, right? There's levels to each of them. More recently, I find it in surfing, you know, and, and it's hard for me to, to pinpoint one time, but when I'm, when I'm on that wave and I'm in that flow state and you just feel the green water, you feel the rails, you feel the fins, you just feel this connection to mother nature, to life, to experience, you got the sun, you got the clear water. That's where I, I feel most alive and, and most joy. But I won't lie, it's been it's been pretty freaking good since I started, you know, really getting into this stuff. Yeah. And it's hard to distinguish between like one moment or another because it's been pretty fascinating. It's a great problem to have. It really is. <laughs> and so you know what's interesting is so I was listening to Jordan Peterson talk the other day, and he was talking about the key to sustained levels of 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 joy or heightened emotions. And he said, as long as humans have a focus, they've got a target and they can see how they're consistently moving towards that target. You're going to have high levels of heightened emotion. You're going to have consistent levels of joy in your life. And what I've noticed is that I always have a target. There's always something that I want to build that I want to create. That doesn't mean that I do it all. It doesn't mean that I see them all through. I don't. You know, some of them fail. Some of them don't work. Some of them just, you know, fizzle out. Sometimes new things come. But there's always something. And I think that's been paramount for me in my life because, you know, even with surfing, for instance, I didn't know how to surf when I moved to Costa Rica. But what did I do every day? Wake up, grab the board, paddle out. Wake up, grab the board, paddle out. Every day. That brought me so much joy, even when I couldn't do it. I was learning. I was evolving. I was growing. And so if we're always working towards a target, working towards evolving, you know, working towards the betterment of us as a human, it's pretty hard to feel bad. Yeah, life happens. You get sick. People pass away. Shitty things go down. That's inevitable, right? But those become the deviation, not the norm which becomes very fascinating when we keep focused on that target. Yeah, it's beautiful. You know, uh, I think we've been talking about probably five hours today already. Yeah. And I could keep talking. I mean, this is, it's, it's remarkable. It's just being in your presence um, is so cool to me and inspirational. So mm. I just want to tell you thank you My so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening. And as always, we're grateful for your time and attention. If you enjoyed the episode, please check out our other podcasts and don't forget to like, subscribe, and share with others. Thank you.